Great to be with you all today. Um, so as you just saw, we're excited about this upcoming Convoy of Hope event. Um, there's, there's many churches in our city partnering with this event, and so that is this coming Saturday. We wanted to make one last push. Um, if you've not yet signed up and you're able to, you can go to mysc3.org and sign up today, um, and we'd love to have you be a part of that event. That is this coming Saturday evening. So my name is Joel McCarty. I'm going to lower this a little bit. I'm the pastor of Missional Life. Um, Thank you for being here today. Jamie Nettles, who you saw earlier doing the baby dedication, is the normal person up here speaking. He will be back with us next week. And so I'm excited to be able to present to you the Word of God today. I don't take that lightly. And so thank you for the opportunity um, to come in and let's engage together, right? We're both engaging and hopefully we will worship through the text today. So as was mentioned a few minutes ago, we are back in Mark. We're going to finish up Mark chapter 5 today. If you've been with us through Mark, you know that this is a book that is unveiling Jesus and the way of the kingdom. It's never like we think it would be, but slowly and unexpectedly, the kingdom moves forth. If you were with us last week, we saw two main stories. We saw Jesus calming the storm and then Jesus casting out a number of demons from a man. And our main takeaway was that Jesus is a king who brings ultimate shalom. And he does that by entering into ultimate chaos on our behalf. So that was last week. Our text today is going to talk a lot about faith and trust in this king. And if we are willing to look at our lives, it will be revealed that often we really struggle to, to trust that Jesus is king and that he is sovereign. And not only that, but to believe that we are his kingdom people actually right now and that we take the kingdom everywhere we walk, everywhere we tread. A question that I've been asking myself and my missional community and some of other people just that I've come into contact with as we've gone through Mark is, what if we really believed that Jesus was king and that we were his kingdom servants? in our jobs, in our schools, at the grocery stores, on the ball fields, everywhere we walked. What if we believed, if we really believed that Jesus was claiming territory right here in Athens, Alabama? I know for myself, I often struggle to believe that in the way I live my life. I say it in my, with my speech and I know it in my head, but I struggle to believe it. And I'll give you an example. Recently, something simple, but I decided I would make my foray into coaching youth sports. So if you want to be sanctified, coach five and six-year-old kids, right? Yes, someone's done it before. They understand what I'm talking about. I've coached middle school and varsity sports, and I found after the season I would much rather do that any day than five and six-year-old kids. But what I found in coaching these kids is that I really was not believing that Jesus was king and sovereign over this football field and over my team. I actually thought that I was. And that was manifested in the way I would react when a kid made a mistake, um, when things didn't go our way, or the way I would get nervous before games, like five and six-year-old games, and I'm at work, and all I can think about is this game upcoming. Or the night before, I'm in bed thinking of schemes to win a flag football game. I'm like, what is going on, right? Or we're playing a team that had beat us, and so we're playing them, and my son jukes this kid out, and I just want to, like, trash talk this five-year-old. Like, yeah, boy, what you got now, right? And I'm like, what am I doing? And so me and my wife, my wife's telling me the same thing. Like, why am I so nervous over here? And so we're, like, on the way to a flag football game, and we're like, Jesus is king, Jesus is king, Jesus is king. He is in charge. If we don't win the championship, we're going to be okay. We did win the championship, just so you know. Side note, I don't care, but we did win. 
Like, I knew I was carrying way too much when in playoffs, I had a free Monday night. You know, you would think I'm pretty busy in the evenings. I would spend that with my family. And instead, um, I was at a five and six-year-old flag football game, scouting, taking notes. I have every play on my phone. Like, this is what they're going to run. This is what we're doing. And my wife was okay with me going. So I guess she was wanting to win too. So I'm just pulling her into my own baggage, right? I don't want to be there by myself. But seriously, I had to ask myself, what if I believed Jesus was king? And he, not only that he was king, but that I was his servant to these five and six-year-old kids. And it would change the way I coached and led this team. And I tried to do it. We're not perfect at it. But at the end of the season, I, I wrote them all handwritten notes and just told them, like, you're loved and you're so much more than how you play on the football field. And I want you to know that and told their parents, if you guys ever need anything, we're here for you. Trying to display the kingdom of God. And so my hope for you today is to leave here encouraged and empowered, trusting that Jesus is king over you in the little things and in the big things, that he can save you and that he will equip you for his mission. So to kind of set up our time together, I want to put the main goal on the screen for you, and that that is that, to believe or trust that Jesus, that King Jesus is sufficient, not only for salvation, yes, for your salvation and your complete healing, but also for his mission. That is my main goal for our time together today. So what we're going to do with this sermon is I don't have three points for you. We're just going to walk through the main story. It's actually two stories. Um, It's essentially the tale of two different daughters that we're going to see. And I'm going to expound on certain points as necessary to help you get into the story. And then we're going to ask just kind of in close three questions. What does the story reveal about us as individuals? So for you as an individual, what does it reveal about God in Christ Jesus? And what does it reveal about us as a church and our mission that God has given us. So let's dive into the story today. Mark chapter five, verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. So if you missed last week, Jesus is told to leave the country of the Gerasenes where he had just healed a man. He complies, and so he gets back into the boat, and from this and other gospel accounts, it seems that he's coming back to the same place he had just left. So he goes across the hill, this man, he comes back, and there's this massive crowd that gathers around him. He's becoming pretty popular at this time, and in the midst of the crowd, the text tells us that this man approaches him, and this man's name is Jairus. Now, Jairus, we're told, is a ruler of the synagogue, and what does that mean? That detail is important. It means that he would have represented power, authority, wealth. He was a thought leader in the community. He was the guy that when he walked around, everybody was like, hey, that's, that's Jairus. Jairus is here, right? The mayor's here. Like, this was what Jairus was. And if you've been following our story here, Mark, you know something about religious leaders at this point. They really don't like Jesus. They're not too fond of his kingdom and the way he is talking about the way his kingdom advances, but something's different about this religious leader. See, Jairus has been brought to a point of desperation because his little girl is sick. The one who he loves is sick and dying. And so Jairus approaches Jesus in utter humility with one request, one thing on his mind, and he asks Jesus to heal his daughter. His daughter's knocking at death's door and he's got nowhere else to turn. What we see Jairus do here would have been shocking. You need to understand this. Remember, this is the midst of a large crowd full of people that would have known who Jairus was and know that he was supposed to act dignified. 
And in this moment of desperation, Jairus could care nothing about his status. He cared nothing about what people thought of him. He did not care how undignified he looked, how it would affect his reputation with the other religious leaders. The only thing he knew is that he was hurting and that he was in need of a healer, that he was in need of a savior. See, all of Jairus's religious training All the passages of the Torah he had memorized, all the religious rules he had sought to follow, all the influence that he had in the community, it meant nothing because it had no power to make broken things work again. It had no power to bring life from death. But this Jairus had heard about a man, not another religious system, not a new law book, but a person a Messiah, the chosen one, some had called him, and they said that this man named Jesus could heal. And so in desperation, with everything to lose, he comes and throws himself at the feet of Jesus in utter humility, not caring who is watching, and he begs Jesus in Mark 5, 23. My little daughter is at the point of death. Come. Lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. He's asking Jesus to touch his daughter, to make her whole, to bring her healing. We're told in Mark 5, 24, that Jesus responds to this request of humility. So Jairus, Jesus, and the crowd, and Jesus' disciples, begin to make their way to Jairus' house. The crowd, no doubt, is probably a little excited and nervous. You can probably hear murmuring among themselves, hey, we're about to get to see a miracle, and with a prominent religious leader. Jairus is probably nervous as well, now that he's got time to kind of walk and think about what people will say about him wondering if this will even pan out, wondering if they'll make it to his little girl in time. And then, as Mark does in the midst of this story, Mark inserts another story. He just stops. He leaves us hanging, and he does what sometimes scholars refer to as a Markin sandwich. So he's going to put this story on hold. He's going to insert another story, complete that story, and then come back to this story. But they flow together perfectly. Mark gives a pretty graphic description of a woman in verses 25 through 26. It reminds us of the graphic description we got last week about the man possessed by demons. Mark again wants us to know that this woman's situation is hopeless, and so let me just read it for you, Mark 5, 25. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. Mark again paints this picture that's utterly bleak and is not only bleak, but getting worse and worse by the day. She has this chronic disease, this endless bleeding or hemorrhaging, and it had lasted for 12 years at this point. She had been to doctors. It had done no good. Most likely doctors had even taken advantage of her and manipulated her. Nothing is working. Most likely this medicine was more superstitious than it was actual medicine. This woman was being taken advantage of. Recorded in the Talmud, which was the written record of Jewish tradition, we actually are given some examples of the type of remedies that they would give to women with this type of condition. I want you to listen to some of these. These are utterly crazy. Here's the first one. Let her take three pints of Persian onions, boil them in wine, and give her to drink, and say, cease her discharge. So she had probably tried that one. Did not work. And here's another one. This one is my favorite. And if it does not cure her, set her at a crossroads, let her hold a cup of wine in her right hand, let someone come behind and scare her. 
I'm not making this up. And then say, cease her discharge. Not very, maybe effective for hiccups, right? Not for stopping this discharge of blood. There were 11 of these crazy and absurd cures and all it did was strip people of their dignity as they humiliated themselves trying anything they could just to be whole. Spending money, dignity, just to be whole. We also need to understand there's much more going on than just this woman's physical sickness. This affected this woman in society on a much deeper scale. We don't have time to go into the whole meaning of the book of Leviticus, but to give you a little context, because we need to understand this for our story, the readers would have understood this. In Leviticus, God is dealing with the Israelites about the manner with which they were to approach him. See, God is holy and set apart, and humanity has rebelled against God, and so they can't just flippantly come near him and draw near his presence. And so Leviticus tells us about some rituals and some things that must be done. It tells us about certain things that could make a person what was called unclean. Now, uncleanness did not necessarily mean sinful. It just simply meant that they were unclean and unable to access God to come near the temple. This is the way of the old covenant. And you might be saying, why was it set up this way? Yes, it is intentionally set up to show you that it is insufficient to save and insufficient to heal completely. Leviticus chapter 15 specifically talks about a woman who is on her period or who has this endless discharge or flow of blood. Now, we won't read it for sake of time, but it very clearly says that she is unclean and that anything she comes into contact with, anything or person is unclean. Not only that, if people come into contact with things that she has touched, they become unclean. This is what's been going on with this woman for 12 years. There is a ripple effect for this woman. This not only affects her physically, it affects her societally, culturally, economically, mentally, and many other areas. She is hopeless. This woman would have been cut off from the broader community, specifically the religious community. She would have been seen as unfit for marriage, which meant she also would not have been able to have children, which were two big identity markers for a woman in this society, unfortunately. She would have been seen as an outcast, as a nuisance, simply in the way as you do everything you can to avoid that woman. It's no wonder Mark uses the word suffered in Mark 5.26. The word here can literally mean tortured. In this male-dominated society, women were already powerless and had no social status. But if you combine it with this disease, and it has so many effects, this woman is truly hopeless and powerless. But just as Jairus, this woman had heard about a man. Not another supposed cure, not another quack doctor, but a person, a Messiah, the chosen one some had called him. And so in desperation, with absolutely nothing to lose, she says to herself in verse 28, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. See, unlike Jairus, she does not have the cultural status, the privilege to approach him in a crowd face to face and ask for help. For her to even be seen in this crowd would have been a massive deal. If she were caught, she could have been taken outside the city gates and stoned for being there. So her plan is just to sneak up behind, touch his garment, see if it works, and slowly and silently slip back into anonymity. Why would she say this about touching his garment? Where is this coming from? Why does she think it would work? We're familiar with this story, so we don't even think about it, but why would she have said that? Again, we need to know some things from the Hebrew Scriptures, from our Old Testament. 
The first thing is in Numbers chapter 15. God tells Moses, listen to this, God tells Moses to have the people of Israel wear these garments that have tassels on the fringe or on the hem. And the purpose of these tassels were to remind them that they were, again, a set-apart people. This has to do with the uncleanness, being set apart and being made right with God, being in right standing with God. He specifically tells them on the corners of this garment to put a blue thread to remind them of God's covenant faithfulness. See, this garment to be worn had most likely at this point turned into something that excluded other people that could not afford it. It missed the heart of it. But there was still this understanding that this garment that had these tassels on the corners or the wings of the garment had special significance. And Jesus, as a rabbi, would have been wearing one of these garments. There's this other passage that this blows my mind towards the end of our Hebrew scriptures that brings more light to our story today. Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, it's the very end of the book, there is this prophecy. This is significant. This is the last prophecy that we see before the time of silence and then when Jesus comes on the scene. Malachi 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogance and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. So you might be saying, what in the world does that have to do with our story today? Two main things I want you to see. First of all, This word, son of righteousness, is a moniker. It is a way of referencing the coming Messiah. Every Jew would have known this. And this word, wings here, rising with healing in his wings, where the healing is found, that is the same exact Hebrew word that we see back in Numbers translated as corners of the garment. So this prophecy is saying that the coming Messiah would rise with healing on his wings, understood in this context by the woman, the corners of his garments, and that those that experience this healing would go out leaping like calves that have been loosed from a stall. I absolutely love that imagery. Pure joy skipping down the road because they are free. If only she could touch the corners of this man's garments, maybe it would work. And so she comes up behind this man face hidden most likely, just crawling through the crowd, touches him, and immediately the text tells us something is different, and she knows it. She had tried everything, but this time she knows. This prophecy was true. The son of righteousness did have healing in his wings. And so she gets her healing, and she has a mind to silently slip back into the anonymity of the crowd and start to figure out, what does this mean for my future? But Jesus has other plans. He's just like him. He wants to deal with everything this woman is facing, not just her physical need. Imagine the scene. The crowd is still excited. Mark has been the one telling us about the woman. The crowd has no idea. She is oblivious. The crowd is oblivious to this woman. They're excited about going to Jairus' house. Only Jesus and her even know something has happened. And then Jesus stops suddenly. You can see the crowd kind of bumping into each other. Well, what's happening? And Jesus says, who touched my garments? Everyone gets quiet. They want to know this Jesus man spoke. His disciples think he's absurd, rightfully so. He's in a crowd full of people. Jesus, a lot of people have touched your garment, but Jesus knows this is different. This is a touch of faith. And so he looks around to see who this was, and can you imagine yourself as this woman? 
I mean, yeah, she was healed, but the text tells us her fear overrides her excitement now. After all, this was a rabbi. She's not supposed to be touching anyone, let alone a male and a religious leader in the community. She's scared to death. But in Mark 5.33, look at this. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, she knows something is different. She comes in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She's like, I don't know the outcome of what's going to happen, but there's something different about this man. And so all that goes out the window, just like Jairus, and she throws herself down, tells the whole truth what is going on, everything, her uncleanness, everything. She puts all her baggage out there in the midst of this giant crowd, and you can imagine their reaction as they move back in disgust and look at this woman. You can imagine the look she would have gotten. But then everyone turns to Jesus, and for some reason, he's not backing away, but he's moving toward her. And the look on his face is not one of disgust, but it is one of utter love. And everyone is listening to what Jesus is going to say. She's broken the ceremonial law, she's unclean, and on top of that, she's touched Jesus, which should have made him unclean. But by now, we're getting to know this Jesus a little bit. We're starting to understand that he doesn't fit into our presuppositions and our boxes and that this is no normal man and this is no old covenant with Jesus. When unclean touches clean, clean is not made unclean, unclean is made clean. Because this is not just a law that has no power, this is a person, Jesus the, the Messiah. And he's got a mind more than just her physical healing. That had already happened at this point. But with the crowd listening to every word, Jesus chooses his words clearly and intentionally. And in Mark 5, 34, he says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. The first word he speaks here is a word of dignity and honor. He calls her daughter. This is massive. Jesus is publicly making a display of the way the kingdom of God functions, that when everyone else sees hopeless and outcast and unqualified, he sees family. He gives this woman full of shame, full of fear, This woman nobody wanted, he gives her a place in the kingdom of God and not just a place through the back door as a servant. No, he says, you are family. See, when the great physician comes on the scene, he saves and heals completely. This word healing is many times translated as saving. This is a complete and holistic saving, not just from her physical ailment, but from sin and all the effects of it. And he tells her, your faith has made you well. I love what the King James says there, made you whole. Then he tells her to go in peace, literally walk into your shalom, into your wholeness, because he's completely received this woman, nobody else would, and he's restored her to a place of honor and dignity in front of everyone on a massive display where nobody could question it. That's what this king does. There truly is healing in the wings of this son of righteousness, and it's even better than this woman could have ever dreamed. Can you see her? As the crowd finally disperses, and she's heading back home, maybe gets around the corner where nobody can see her, and full of joy, she starts skipping like a little girl down the path, or maybe we could say like a calf loosed from its stall. This woman is completely healed. But we've kind of forgotten about Jairus. 
What's going on with that story? And Mark goes right back into his story. It says, while in Mark 5.35, while Jesus was still speaking with this woman, some come from the ruler's house and they tell Jairus, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Before Jesus is even done with this woman, Jairus is questioning what's going on. He probably had to be a little frustrated, a little doubtful. Why would Jesus stop and deal with this woman? I mean, she's had the issue for 12 years. I told him my daughter's issue was life-threatening, and this woman's at least lived some of his life. My daughter is only 12 years old. I told him he was at death's door. Did he not care? And once again, we're reminded that the kingdom does not move forward in the time or manner that we think it should. Jairus is encouraged not to bother the teacher anymore. I mean, can you blame him? Jairus had heard that this Jesus could heal sickness. He had even just witnessed it with this woman, but death, that's a different story. See, death is final, death is complete, and death is undefeated. Or is it? And Jesus overhears this conversation. He turns to Jairus in Mark 5, 36. Look at this. Do not fear, only believe. Mark is intentional with the wording he's using here, and this is incredible. The same word believe here is the same word in the Greek that he had just used to describe what this woman had had, the faith that this woman had had, and in the upside down way of the kingdom, the one who was normally looked to as the model of spirituality, the one who was religious, who was supposed to have all the answers, is now encouraged to turn and look to this outcast woman as the model for his faith. And so with no choice, they head to Jairus' house to see this dead little girl. They get to the house, and as was in the culture, professional mourners are already there. This was very ritualistic. They're just there. They had hired them. The family would have been making burial plans. So Jesus comes in, sees everyone mourning, and asks, why are you mourning? What's all the commotion? The child's not dead. She's sleeping. Now, this child clearly was dead from this and other gospel accounts, but Jesus is speaking from a perspective that only he can have. To wake this girl from the dead is no more difficult for him than a father waking up his child from a nap. Some of you might say that's really difficult if you're trying to get them ready for school in the morning, but you get the point. So the mourner's ritualistic lament quickly turns to a mocking laughter, and what this is doing is foreshadowing the true lamenting of the family that would soon turn to true laughter. And Jesus sends the mourners outside. He's left with Jairus, Jairus' family, three of his closest disciples, and the dead body of this little girl. He had already told the crowds not to come a while back, and so as opposed to the public show of the woman that he just healed, this is a very private matter. Jesus goes up to the little girl in verse 41. Mark 5, 41, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. He does a couple things that would have been shocking. First of all, he again violates the Jewish ceremonial law by touching the corpse of this little girl. She would have been considered unclean, but Jesus doesn't care because he's fulfilling the old covenant, not bound by it. And then he says to her, Talitha kum. We don't fully understand this phrase as it's given to us in English, but what you need to see is that this word little girl is a term of endearment. It is literally what you would call your daughter. Maybe honey or little lady or what I say to my three-year-old daughter, Everly. Hey, girl. Hey, what's up, girl? It's good to see you. And this arise is simply saying get up, just like a parent would say to a child getting up from a nap. Jesus deals with raising a girl from the clutches of death with the same amount of effort as I walk into my daughter's room on a sunny day and say, hey, girl, time to get up. Let's go play some games. This is what this king is doing. And what does this girl do? Of course, she obeys. She gets up and starts walking, and everyone is in awe. 
He tells them not to tell anyone. After making this public display with this woman, he tells Jairus, the religious leader, and his family not to tell anyone. What is Mark doing? A couple things. One, he doesn't want everyone to try to take him by force and make him Messiah in their way and their time. That's the first thing. And the second thing he's doing that I want you to see is he's highlighting the upside down nature of the kingdom. If it was me, if it was my story I was telling, I would want the religious leader to be the one to go spread my fame, to be my voice of publicity, but not Jesus. He chooses this outcast, tormented woman to make the public display of his kingdom, making sure that everyone knows that you can't just make this kingdom fit inside your box. You can't just add it into your comfortable life you already have going on. It's a whole new way. And then Jesus tells her at the very end of the story that I love, give her something to eat. Now, I have no cool reason why this is in there, but I think it's really cool because I think it's just like Jesus. Is everybody standing there kind of gawking like, what is going on? Jesus is like, hey guys, like she just raised from the dead. Can we get her something to eat? She's a little hungry. And it also shows us that this girl's healing is complete. There's no side effects. There's no gradual healing. This is immediate. She's walking around and eating food. So again, as last week, we've seen some amazing stories through the tale of these two daughters. We've seen the way of the kingdom and the way the kingdom advances. I hope you're beginning to see that Jesus is a compassionate and powerful king who receives and restores, that he is sufficient for salvation and for the mission of God. And so to bring this home for us, as I said, I wanna spend a few minutes asking three questions. What does the story reveal to us about, uh, sorry, what does the story reveal about us as individuals is the first question. The second question, what does the story reveal about God in Christ Jesus? And lastly, what does the story reveal about us as a church community and the mission that God has given us? And so let's look at the first question. What does the story reveal about us as individuals? I hope as we've gone through the story, maybe you've been able to see yourself in one of these characters. Maybe for you, you see yourself in the story of Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue. Maybe you've grown up religious. This is my story right here. Maybe you can quote scripture. Maybe you know all the right cliche things to say. Maybe you're considered as moral and upstanding in the community. You're the one that society would look to and say they are close to God and they should be seen as a model example of spirituality and faith. But you know better. You know that deep within you're full of doubts and hurting. Maybe you've been wrecked by suffering and loss and you know up close and personal that your religion could do absolutely nothing to save you in those moments. That your morals are helpless in the face of sickness and death. That when cancer, miscarriage, or loss come knocking on your door, the only scriptures you found yourself quoting were the ones that questioned God's goodness, not the ones that affirmed it. You know your religion is utterly powerless to save, to heal, and to bring life from death. And if you're still trusting in that religion, believe that it is so, and you will come to find that it is powerless and cannot save. Maybe you relate more closely to this woman with the discharge of blood. Maybe you don't know much about religion other than what you've caught from the culture around you. Maybe you've even been excluded from religious communities based on your social status, your disabilities, the color of your skin, your marriage status, or one of many other factors. Yet no one would tell you you can't come through the doors, but when you do, you feel like you are an outcast. You've even gone to philosophies of this age to look for belonging, healing, saving, and wholeness, and every time you've come up empty, there's been nothing to bring you life from your situation 
of death and there's been more suffering and more torment. The ideas have only brought you, they've, they've mocked you, they've taken advantage of you. The world has told you this is what will give you happiness and you've tried it and every time it's left you empty and you know up close and personal that you are powerless and without hope. No one needs to convince you to be humbled because you're reminded of your shame every day as you stare in the mirror looking at the mess of a life you have been given and you have made. And through these characters, we learn that all of humanity, no matter what outward appearances seem to show us, all of humanity is broken and in need of healing. That every single human, you and I included, are in need of healing. No matter your social status or your place in culture, you are powerless to save yourselves. Whether you find yourselves on Sunday mornings in the wall of a church building or laid up in a motel room with used needles on the floor around you from an evening trying to escape the numbness and numb your misery, every single one of us need Jesus to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And if you don't believe that, I hope that your world is wrecked so you will come to a place where you believe that because that is good for you. And here's the good news. You know you're gonna get this from me every time. That's exactly what Jesus does. That brings us to the second question we seek to answer. What does this story reveal about God in Christ Jesus? See, in the face of Jesus, we have to see this. We see the exact imprint of God's nature. This story shows us that Jesus is compassionate and powerful and that he receives the most unlikely into his kingdom. Those that have been humbled by brokenness and finally stop turning to religion or those who never had anywhere else to turn and they throw themselves on the mercy of this king hoping he can do what they've heard he can. And he doesn't only receive us and leave us broken, he restores us to what we were created to be. He's creating a new humanity, a new people, a people that trust him completely with their lives, trusting in his cross and resurrection to make us whole. Yes, not less than physical, but so much more, complete healing from top to bottom. Mark tells us this interesting detail in the story that I don't think is put there by accident. I'm not one to get big on numbers, but in this text, he tells us that this woman's discharge of blood has been going on for 12 years. And he also enters this detail that this little girl is 12 years old. And if you remember, we talked about how the 12 disciples represented Jesus calling together a new and true humanity. Could it be that Mark is making clear that both these women one who had the disease and the other who was 12 years old both have a place in God's kingdom. He's showing us that those who had no place in society are welcome in the kingdom of God. This new humanity is made up of the most unlikely of people and that's good news for those who have ears to hear because that means that you and I are welcome here. We also learn that God is quick to save, quick to heal, that he doesn't even require full and perfect faith. I love this. This woman's faith, though commended, was not perfectly complete. You don't have to fully understand the way the kingdom works. This woman operated on what she knew. She measured out what she had and acted on that. You don't have to fully understand what it means for this Jesus to have healing in his wings. You can be scared and fearful. You don't have to be religious. You don't have to be an insider. Just operate on what you know. Act on what you've been given and throw yourself. Respond to the message of this kingdom and walk towards Jesus. See, Jesus, this is the gospel flip. Jesus is the one who had perfect faith on our behalf. 
He perfectly trusted his father on the cross when he said, well, in the garden first, when he said, not my will, but thine be done. And then on the cross, when he said, father, into your hands, I give you my spirit. And then he prays and he dies. Father, I trust you through shame, through fear, even through death. I know that in the resurrection, you will be my dignity. You will be my delight, my joy. I know you'll be my life and my resurrection. Jesus is not calling you to do anything that he has not first done himself. It's worth it to give everything you have, to be willing to lose your status and come face to face with this king, to be willing to forfeit your standing or privilege in society. And if all you can do is crawl, ashamed, scared, hiding and hurting, to just touch his garment, that's enough too. Because Jesus is faithful. That's the beauty of the gospel. Healing awaits and not just physical healing. See, this woman who had healed would die one day. And this little girl who was raised from the dead would again die one day. But this king is going to deal with sin, sickness, and death. See, just as this woman was shunned and cast outside the city, left alone and forsaken, seen as unclean because of the flow of her blood, so too Jesus willingly became unclean. He was numbered with thieves, cast outside the city, left alone and forsaken by his father, all alone so that we would never have to be. And the flow of his blood is what brings ultimate healing. The pouring out of his blood is what gives us the right to become sons and daughters, to give us forgiveness of sins by his stripes. We truly are completely healed. He is the true son of righteousness who has healing in his wings. And we don't just get to touch the corners of his garments. We are completely wrapped in his robes of righteousness. He covers us in his wings and we are loosed to skip in the freedom of Christ like calves loosed from a stall. He is the one who, when holding our hand, we don't even have to fear death itself because we know the cross and resurrection has happened. We know that one day we will be dignified and raised to live with Christ in the last day, in the eternal kingdom, in the new creation. So let us now draw near to him, as Hebrews says. I wish we had time to read that. If you get a chance, Hebrews chapter 10, 19 to 25. We can now draw near to God, the God that once could only be accessed by rituals to make oneself clean. This same God, now in Christ Jesus, has been made known. The veil has been torn, and it's a beautiful sight. We've been made clean by the blood of Jesus. Hebrews tells us we can hold fast to our hope without wavering. Why? He tells us not because of our religion, not because we are full of faith, but rather because he is faithful. He is the truly faithful one. I hope you're beginning to trust Jesus for your complete salvation, your complete healing, and seeing that he is sufficient. My last question in close, what if this is all true? What if you believe that you are the powerless, but in Christ Jesus you have been brought near? What does this mean? How does this change the way we function? How does this change the way we live as a kingdom community? What does it reveal about the church and its mission? If this is true, this changes everything. 
See, when Jesus rises from the dead, unlike this little girl, when she rose from the dead, there is no command to keep silence. Rather, it is the opposite. Go to the rooftops, go to the marketplaces, and display and declare the good news of this king and his kingdom. So now we become what Jesus was. We become a community who welcomes in the broken, the hurting, the marginalized, the outcast, the poor, those that have come to the end of themselves looking for a solution, and they're ready to hear the comforting message of Jesus. We don't stop there. The religious are welcome here too. Just leave your religion at the door. We welcome them in when they've seen that their religion could not save them. Rituals in and of themselves have left them empty and looking for more. You are welcome here. And by doing this, we live out parables of spiritual realities all around us. And my question is, do we trust Jesus in this? Do we truly believe that he is sufficient for the task he has called us to do? Do we believe that he is king and that everywhere our feet tread, we are his ambassadors, his image bearers to the world around us? Can I get really personal for a second? May we be a people who look at our lives, our bank statements, our calendars, and our priorities and let them reveal what we actually believe, not what we say we believe. This is not a guilt trip. I just want us to know that this is who we were without Christ do we understand that if, if we do, it changes the way we live? It's asking the question, do we really believe that the same mission that Jesus had is the same mission that he's given to his church? How do we expect people to believe in a God who will draw near to them if we won't? So together, let us ask, how do we take Jesus to a divided, angry, and hurting world? How do we go into dark places and give them an eternal hope? We have the hope. We see the brokenness. The world agrees with us that the world is broken. We just disagree on the solution. Look at the news. We saw this week where two black men were gunned down at a grocery store seemingly because of the color of their skin. And then yesterday we saw a synagogue that was shot up where several folks were killed based on their Jewish ethnicity. This world is broken, church. And in the midst of this broken world, the kingdom of God says there is a remedy. So yeah, let's ache for physical restoration for ourselves and for other communities. Evil reminds us that things are not as they are supposed to be. So let's lament, but know, church, that ultimate salvation and restoration awaits. This king is sufficient to save and he will accomplish his mission. He's a compassionate king who receives and restores. So let us draw near to this king and receive with arms open those who have ears to hear. And when they come looking for Jesus, don't give them self-help, don't give them religion, give them what they're looking for, Jesus. Nothing more and nothing less. So be encouraged, church. King Jesus is claiming his territory and he will not fail. Let's spend some time in prayer and commune together. I have three prayer directives for you on the screen. The first one, I want you to thank Jesus that he is sufficient and enough for our ultimate healing. You've gotta start there. You can't just go on mission without remembering that or you'll get worn out, you'll get ragged, and you'll burn out. And secondly, I want you to ask Jesus to give you faith as a gift to believe that he is sufficient for the mission of the church. Ask him to give you that faith. And then lastly, I want you to pray for the communities that have been targeted by senseless violence this week, specifically the black community, the African-American community, and the Jewish community. 
I want you to pray for them. When it affects one of them, it affects all of them. And just as when people who look like you or sound like you are affected by violence, it hits closer to home. And so let's pray for those that many times have been marginalized throughout history. And so let's spend some time doing that. After we pray, 